Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails, but let me introduce the podcast first. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk J. Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This is an email from an anonymous female patron. She writes, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I am ashamed to say that it led me to molest my little sister. I am currently processing this in my own therapy. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of this email, but uh, she's an adult now. And she wrote to me about having uh, been sexually abused as a young child and then grew up to abuse her younger sister. Now she's an adult. and She's in therapy about it. I've talked about the abuse with my sister and was able to apologize to her. And I've been through a lot of therapy for it. My partner is also a a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And he recently told me that when he was a teenager, he molested a younger family member as well. He said he recently apologized to her and that he feels shame for what he did. As someone who has been through abuse, I understand his situation. But I feel very strongly that he should get therapy because of his childhood experiences. But he refuses to go to therapy. I love this man, Kirk, and besides this problem, we have a great supportive relationship. I want to start a family with him, but with this new information about him being abused as a child and about him abusing a younger family member when he was a child, I am not sure I can be in a relationship with him anymore, and it breaks my heart. Am I doing the right thing by pressuring him to go to therapy? Should I back off? Is it stupid of me to want to continue being in a relationship with him? Any advice you have will be greatly appreciated because I am at a total loss on what to do. End of email. Okay. So the first thing is, is there's no easy answers to this. I, you know, I'm, I'm a person who is responding to your email. So if, if you were a client of mine or a friend of mine, we could talk about this and go over all the details and, and blah blah blah, and I still prob I still wouldn't have any you know easy answers to it, but I'd be- have a more informed way of responding to it. But um, there are some things that one could say. So one of the questions you ask me is, should you be pressuring him to go to therapy? Well, let's look at. You didn't give me exactly. Wh- I- I'd want to know why you're pressuring him to go to therapy. I suspect it has to do with common goals that people have when they pressure people to go to therapy. I would imagine that you want him to recover from the abuse. You would like him to get therapy so that he could recover from the abuse. I'm guessing you also want him to go to therapy because you want him to be as good of a partner, good of, you know, as good of a husband and father as he could be. I'm also guessing you want him to go to therapy because you think it might prevent him from abusing children in the future. I'm, 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 you didn't say that explicitly about you know, why you are pressuring him to go to therapy, but I suspect that has something to do with it because it, it often does. Now, therapy can help with, help with recovery and with uh, preventing abuse in the future for sure. But there are other ways that, you know, people recover and reduce the likelihood of them abusing children in the future. And he might have been on a path to recovery for a long time, regardless of the fact that he doesn't go to therapy. And he might be on a path of recovery and enlightenment as he moves forward in life. I mean, he came forward and talked to you about it. So, you know, that's part of his recovery. I'm guessing that that was therapeutic for him to to admit to you these things that he has been keeping secret for so long. 
And it's also possible that he might not ever abuse anyone in the future. I mean, just the fact that he was abused as a child doesn't, does not necessarily mean that he's going to abuse children in the future. So, you know, so I'm guessing that's why you're pressuring him to go to therapy. But like I said, there are other ways of meeting those goals. And also going to therapy doesn't mean that he'll necessarily recover or necessarily reduces likelihood of abusing children in the future. You know, therapy doesn't necessarily do those sorts of things. So it's a squishy thing, psychology and behavior and motivation. Therapy can absolutely help, but it's not a guarantee by any means. Um, it, it, I, you seem to be exhibiting a kind of attitude that I've seen before where it's just like, I, I you know, I treat a lot of families. And so the parents will be like, um, my my 12-year-old daughter was abused by an uncle and she refuses to go to therapy and i just need her to go to therapy and so i've been with or you know my husband refuses to go to therapy and he was abused as a child and he you know i've seen i've been in a lot of conversations like this before and it, there seems to be this this attitude of like well if i can just force this person to go to therapy, everything will be okay. And really what I think this is, is it's just an expression of your own anxiety, right? I mean, you're, you're worried that the fact that your partner came forward and told you that he was abused as a child and that he abused it. So, you know, he was abused as a young child, then he grew up a little older and he, but he was still a child, still a minor, and he abused a younger family member himself. And then now he's an adult. And as far as you know, he hasn't abused anyone since then. And the, uh, which is very common, by the way, it's very common for people who have been sexually abused to later in their childhood engage in abuse of younger children themselves. It, it is, it's so common. It's it, because there's a, there's a number of factors. One is, is we, because of the PTSD and the attachment disruptions and the confusion and the crossed wires as the older children, uh, particularly as we become teenagers and have a lot more sexual urges, we, we act out those impulses. Now, as we mature into adulthood, we start figuring out how to manage those impulses and how to direct our sexuality in a more functional manner. You know, just as one example, say you're a boy and you're sexually abused as a kid, you grow up, now you're 13, 14, and you have your raging hormones and you're very horny, but you don't really know where to point your sexuality. And there, you know, one night there's a, a, a younger cousin or a, a neighbor or someone, and you, you just like, you know, or let me back up and say that this 14-year-old boy tries to get together with girls his own age because he has urges to, you know, make out with girls his own age, and they reject him, and they won't talk to him, or he's too shy to approach them, or, some, you know, we could imagine that situation. Well, he still has these urges, and since it's a part of his moral landscape to have older people uh, sort of subject younger people to sexual exploitation because that's what happened to him. And because when he was young, he might've thought, well, is it, that's normal. Cause it's not like right after being abused as a five-year-old, someone steps in and says that was abnormal and wrong. If no one was there to help you, then you just sort of graduate from that experience thinking like, well, that's, that's part, that's the way the world works, right? That when you're young, you know, sometimes older people do that to you. You know, it's just like as strange as that seems when you're a victim 
as especially as a child, that's the conclusion that you come to. Well, now you're 14, you're still a child, and you proceed to uh, have that be an option. It's not your first option, but it's an option because of sexual frustration um, with you know girls your own age, and so you exploit a, yo- a younger child, uh, you know, in that way. And it doesn't make it right by any means, and it continues the cycle of abuse. But it, it's it's a reason why it happens. Uh, it's not necessarily a sign that someone has attraction to younger children or has a compulsion to have sex with with minors and you know young children. It, it can be an expression of of the way I described it. And therefore, as one gets older, and especially as one has uh, sexually satisfying relationships, and as one learns the moral landscape that they adopted as young children is not, uh, uh, is not correct, then they um, aren't really at risk of abusing other people. Anyway, so now having said that, um, you know, he really both of you have risk factors that you might abuse children in the future, right? You you both were abused and you both have abused younger people. But now you abused younger people as when when you were minors. But you know, you you have the risk factor. You both you both do. So it's not like uh it's not inconceivable that that the impulse could be there for for either one of you. But anyway, so getting back to your question of like, should I pressure him to go to therapy? Well, you know, it. I've seen people consider therapy to be this cure-all of just like, well, if I just can get him to go to therapy, then then everything will be okay. But of course, you know, the fact that he told you that he was abused, that, that disclosure itself makes you afraid, right? There's just something um, a little or greatly... Uh, discombobulating or, you know, uh, disorientating about that. And also the fact that he told you that when he was an older child, he abused a younger child. That's very, that's very confusing. That's scary to hear your partner has done that sort of thing, right? So what you're dealing with is a lot of fear and you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. And I think from your email, it's really hard for me to tell because I haven't talked to you. But in in other circumstances like this with other people I've talked to, they will manifest their fear in, you know, if I can just get this person to go to therapy, then I won't be afraid anymore. You know, I'm afraid and I'm terrified and what I've learned scares me. And the answer is to get this person into therapy. And, you know, it's not a bad idea to suggest therapy to someone like this, but but it's not necessarily going to fix your fears, you know? So it's just, I, I, I just want to acknowledge that it's normal to be afraid and uncertain and, um, you know, discombobulated after learning about this. And just to take care of yourself around that, you know, get some support, process this, recognize your fear, recognize your uncertainty and, you know, be with that. You know, the the bottom line here is that um, there's just no way to know what will happen. Again, your email didn't say this explicitly, so I could be completely misreading this. But it seems like your main worry, if I was to put it, if I was to put it in one sentence, I, I would say you're worried that you're because you said you wanted to have a family with him, you want to have children with him, and I'm I suspect you're worried that something bad is going to happen if he doesn't go to therapy, and you're worried that 
he he might abuse your children is i'm i'm guessing that's main maybe if i was to put it into like something concrete or he'll be a bad partner or he'll hurt you or something and the thing is is that there's just no way to know what will happen you know i have an impulse as a human being to say to you like oh it it won't happen or well he's been good you know to you up to this point you know he you know things will be okay or you know, he came forward and admitted to you that he did these things. So that's a good sign. That means, you know, there's a pretty good likelihood he's not going to do anything ever again. But the fact is, is like, no one knows what's going to happen. And, and I have learned that, you know, in some very poignant moments of my career and my life, you know, um, that there are times when something will, like I had a client a long time ago who I worked with for years and then all of a sudden, boom, I got this uh, realization, I uh, learned that this person had been abusing people the entire time I was involved with them. And they were in therapy and they were, you know, participating meaningfully in therapy. And I just had no idea. And I would, n- I would never have suspected this person of doing anything like that to people. It just seemed... You know, if you like, if you had met this person, you would have been like, "There's no way this person would have harmed anybody." The thing is, is you just don't know. You know, it's just so hard. And I'm guessing that you're you're worried. It's like, okay, you know, this this my my partner has a past of difficulty, and what if I marry him and we have kids together, and then 20 years from now, I realize I've made a terrible mistake. You know, and why didn't I notice the warning signs? He told me that he had been abused. He told me that he abused a younger family member uh, before I married him, before I had kids with him. He told me about that. And it's just, it's just uncertain. And it's, it's hard to know. Um, now, I will say that uh, given what you've told me about his situation, there's not a high risk that he's going to do anything horrible, right? I think the best gauge of his future behavior is his past behavior, you know, in terms of his adult life and whatever he's been doing, uh, you know, as you've known him for the number of years you've been with him already, I think, I think that's, you know, a pretty good indicator of what he's going to be like in the future. But, you know, you just, you just never know. (laughs) Um, Now, if he had a history of sexually abusing younger people last year, or, you know, five years ago as an adult, then that would be a much bigger red flag, right? Uh, It still wouldn't necessarily mean that he was going to do it again. But, you know, the fact that he was sexually abused as a child and then grew up to be an older child and and abused a younger child is, that's a very common thing. That's a very common scenario for for, uh, abuse victims. Um, And the vast majority of abuse victims don't grow up to be abusers themselves, there's, you know, anyway. So um, the, the other thing about uh, pressuring people to go to therapy is that you should just never pressure people to go to therapy. You know, I hate it when I get a referral like that from somebody. You know, someone makes an appointment with me, they sit down on my couch, and then some at some point, either midway through the first session or maybe even by the third session, I suddenly realize, oh, this person is doesn't want to be in therapy. They're being forced to come to therapy. And I just have to say it's a complete waste of time. And I pretty much immediately terminate with people like that. 
Um, even if they're like, well, you know, like I recently had a client who was like that and they were like, well, you know, I don't mind coming to therapy. And I'd, and I'd be like, well, uh, it's great that you don't mind it, but do you want therapy? And they'd be like, well, you know, I don't mind. I'll come. And I'm like, no, no, no. Do you want therapy? Do you want me to help you with anything? And they were like, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm doing pretty good. And, I'll, and I'd be like, did, did anyone basically, you know, suggest that you come? And they'll be like, yeah, you know, my partner really wanted this to happen. But, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, that's not going to work. I don't, I don't work with people who don't mind therapy, you know. I work with people who are dying to come to therapy and want my help and want to work on things, you know. Like, that's the people I work with. So, so I, you know, immediately move towards termination. It's, it's just a waste of time. You know, I, I only have so many, uh, you know, sessions left in the rest of my life and I don't want to waste it with people who are just putting up with therapy. You know, it's just, it's just not what I want to do. Some, some therapists are cool with that. I, I'm not. Um, mainly because, uh, not because of a personal kind of aggravation. It, it's because we're wasting everyone's time and money essentially there, there's there's very little that can be done with someone who is who is tolerating therapy now when it comes to working with kids and teens a lot of the kids and teens don't want to be in therapy and in those situations uh i have a different attitude because it's like it, if i only worked with voluntary teenagers i would never work with a teenager <laughs> um incidentally i at this stage in my career i only work with adults for some reason it just seems to be the referrals i'm getting but anyway um you know, adult individuals and couples, but throughout my career, a, a good, you know, third of my clients were teenagers and their families. Um, so you can't, you can't force people to go to therapy. It's not very helpful. Uh, it's a waste of time. If you want to get someone to go to therapy, you want them to go voluntarily, right? So you want to, you know, gently recommend that they go. You want to, um, you know, maybe point out maybe figure out why they don't want to go. You know, is it the stigma? Is it the shame of therapy? Is it that they feel like therapy is worthless or that they're only going to, you know, prescribe medication or that the therapist is going to shame them or something. And so taking trying to help people to not have those fears can be one way. The other thing is lead by example. Just, you know, when you come home from therapy, just say like, oh, man, I had a great session. We did this. I just feel so much better. It just feels so great to have a therapist to talk to about these things. Make it attractive to others. Don't don't force them. Don't pressure them, you know. Um, so uh, and I in my experience, the more acclimated someone is to the idea of therapy, the more likely they are to go when they need it. So, um, you know, like in Seattle, there's a very positive point of view about therapy. Lots of people go and there's, there's not as much stigma as in other areas. And therefore you find that, you know, lots of people go to therapy and lots of people talk about it openly, you know, and people will just be like, Oh, I, you know, I was talking with a therapist the other day and, you know, he said, da, 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 da. and it's just like, it's not, you know, people say that, you know, at the blink of an eye, it's not a big, not a big deal. Men, women, you know, everyone, uh, you know, in general, or at least in my echo chamber, seems to be a cool with it. So, so, uh, you know, I realize that I'm not helping you really at all with this response because one, because I don't know your situation that well, but two, because uh, there's just, uh, um, 
So, so your question is, should you be pressuring him? I would say no. If you want wanting him to go to therapy, I think is fine. But again, you want to entice him to go to therapy, not pressure him to go to therapy. And maybe you're doing that. I don't know. But here, here are some questions that I have for you, patron is, you know, do you love him? You know, you say yes. So, so that's a big deal. You love him. And I, so should you be in a relationship with him? I think that's a tick in the yes column. You, you love him. Do you feel safe with him? You know, you didn't talk about that, but I wonder, you know, do you feel safe? Do you personally feel safe? Okay. So that would be something to ask yourself. Do you think he'll be a good partner in the future? And has he been a good partner in the past? Do you think he'll be a good father? Do you have any reason to believe that he'll abuse your children sexually or otherwise? Um, you know, be, as I said, both of you have been abused and both of you have abused younger siblings when you were children. And as far as we know, both of you have never abused anyone after, you know, becoming an adult. So, you know, those are warning signs, having abused someone younger when you were a young child. Those are warning signs for future abuse for both of you, but, but very weak predictors, you know, the vast majority of people who fit your profile based on what you've told me are not going to grow up to abuse, you know, children themselves. But the main thing is, is just getting back to the uncertainty is, can you live with the uncertainty? Because, you know, there might be other partners out there that don't create as much uncertainty, or at least don't create uncertainty that's perceived or something. Because this is important, you know, nothing is certain in life. And I think, and you're not saying this in your email, so I, again, I could be completely misreading it. But from the sound of it, it sounds like you're suffering from uncertainty. You're like, you know, he told me these things, and now I'm uncertain about the future. I don't know what's going to happen. Before he told me he, he, had, he was abused and that he had abused a younger family member, I, I had a certain level of certainty about marrying him and having children with him. Now I'm uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen. And... The fact is, is that's what I would target. That's what I'd be processing. I wouldn't be processing, how do I get him to therapy? I wouldn't be processing, how do I make sure he is a good partner or something like that? It's more of just like, how do I deal with uncertainty? Because whether it's him or another partner, in all likelihood, you're going to have uncertainty. There's just no way to know. And the fact that you were abused by a family member when you were a child means that you're going to have a lot of sensitivity to uncertainty. Because, you know, when we, in order for us to feel safe as human beings, we have to have a certain amount of certainty, right? We have to, we have to feel like the sun will rise tomorrow and that our family members love us and that our, that our world is safe. And, you know, life taught you early in life that the world is not a safe place and that the people around you are not necessarily safe people to be around. And so with this revelation of learning about your partner and, and his history, I'm guessing it's making you feel unsafe just, you know, in an amorphous manner. And, and your answer to that is to get him into therapy, you know, get him to therapy and then I'll feel safe. But the fact is, is that there's no, you know, getting him to therapy doesn't necessarily address that. And uh, so one is, is to continue to recover from the trauma that you went through, which could take a lifetime, honestly, not to bum you out, but, but also, how how do you process and deal with and and um, and you know mainly process that uncertainty? Because the fact is is that nothing is certain in life, and there are a lot of things that are are very uncertain. 
like whether or not our partners will leave us or not. You know, I talk about this a lot with a lot of my clients who suffer from safety and uncertainty, which is like they I, I have a number of clients who are plagued with worry about their partners leaving them. And there's that you just that and, and so they so they grasp for answers. You know, they they try to figure out how do I establish for sure that my partner is not going to leave me. And the fact is, is like there's no certainty to that. And instead of grasping for certainty, one answer to life and well-being might be to face the uncertainty and to accept, to find a way to accept the uncertainty. All of our partners could cheat on us tomorrow. All of our partners could leave us tomorrow. That can happen at any time. That's life. And we're given a fantasy world in all the romance, you know, cartoons and TV shows that if we love our partner enough, they will never leave us. But I'm here to tell you that that's not true. And I, again, I hate to bum people out, but life is riddled with examples of people loving and loving and loving and being dumped and being left or one day waking up and deciding to dump yourself. You know, you, you decide, ah, I'm done with this person. At one time I stood at, at the altar and proclaimed my love forever for this person. And now not so much, you know, people change and relationships are uncertain and uh, it's uncertain as to whether or not your partner is going to be a good father or not. You know, these, these are just uncertainties and we just can't, there's no way to answer that question sufficiently in terms of things you have available to you now, unless you had some sort of time machine, you know, to, to, to eliminate that uncertainty. So, so part of it to me is trying to find a way, it's almost like grieving the fantasy of certainty. That's, that's how I, I talk about it with clients. It's like, let's grieve the loss that, that certainty is a thing, you know? Let's let's be sad about that because wouldn't it be nice if we could be certain about our partners? Wouldn't it be nice if we could be certain about our loved ones? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But but that's just not the case, especially when things happen that make us more uncertain, right? And so we have to be sad about that. Sucks. It's a loss. You know, we're raised in a society that believes there are certainties and there are ways of finding certainty but there aren't. And so it's sad. It sucks. And so that, that's, that's a loss. That's, that's just a bummer. And we can all be together in that sadness and in that fear. And there's just no way around it. It's, it's like the fact that we're all going to die one day, right? We have to grieve the loss of the notion that we're never going to die. And we can be together in that acceptance of that bummer. And and again, this isn't just for abuse survivors, right? I'm not speaking specifically to childhood sexual abuse survivors. I'm talking of this is, you know, true for everyone that life is uncertain. Um so uh you know, all you can do, patron, is do your best to predict the future. You know, from your email again, it's you didn't go into full detail, so it seems like you're you want to be able to know, is this man going to be a good husband? Is he going to be a good father? I love him. I want to be with him. But now I have this information that makes me wonder. 
And the thing is, is all you can do is just do your best to predict the future and then make decisions based on those predictions. You know, ask opinions from other people, get some feedback, but but you'll never know for sure. You know, like you can't you can't eliminate uncertainty and you can't you can't predict the future. You just don't know. And and the key is is to not beat yourself up later if you find out that you made a decision that you regretted. You know, but but you know all you can do is just make the best decision you can given the information before you. That's all you can do. Um, and again, overall, from what you told me, uh, I wouldn't put either one of you at a high risk of abusing children in the future. Um, you know, you were sexually abused. And then as later children, you abused younger children. It sounded like the abuse that both of you engaged in of younger children when you were children was not extensive. Um, from what it sounds like, it didn't continue after that. So, you know, there's a slight increase in risk for both of you of being, uh, you know, of being abusive to children later on in life. You know, a slight, you know, it goes from... 0.01% chance to a 0.02% chance or something like that. That's not the actual statistic, but that's what I mean by a slight increase. You know, it's not like going from 2% to 50%. You know, we're talking about, you know, say a 0.1% chance to a 0.2% chance or something. Who knows? But so, so it's still, you know, given what you've told me, you're both at pretty low risk of actually uh, abusing children. But, you know, even someone who's never been sexually abused as a child can grow up to be a to abuse their children and be a terrible partner. So you could break up with this guy, find someone else, you know, give them a polygraph and make sure that they've never been abused or sexually abused anyone in their past, and they could go on to be a terrible partner and a terrible father. So that's uncertainty, and that's what we have to accept. That's what we have to just say, all I can do is do my best. This, you know, the uncertainty doesn't mean I have to be paralyzed. Uncertainty doesn't mean I have to run from life. Uncertainty is a part of life. I, I can, all I can do is do my best. I want to have a family. I want to have a partner. I want to have a life. I want to have relationships. I want to trust people. And I'm going to do my best to figure out p the people around me that I can be with that will be trustworthy and I will try not to be blind to factors, and I'll ask people around me if they what they think about you know my decisions. I'll get um, feedback. I'll look into things, but in the end, I make a choice, and I you know, and I just have to trust that I made the choice, the best choice I could make, given the information available to me and my life circumstances. You know. And that's, and then you, and then you just see what happens and, and that sucks, you know, it sucks not to know, but that's the magic of life too, right? Uncertainty in a certain way is a wonderful, magical, beautiful thing. You know, the fact that we just don't know, and that's the liminal anxiety space of stepping across that, that chasm of like, Ooh, I hope I make it. And then when you make it, it's, it's exhilarating, you know, the, you know, when, when you ask someone to marry you. There's that, there's that leap of, I hope this person says yes. When you decide to get pregnant, you just think, well, I hope this child survives, you know, and then when the child survives, it's exhilarating. The reason why it's exhilarating is because there's a real risk of it not working out. You know, when you ask someone to marry you, they might say no. 
when you have a child, that child might not survive. That's real. That's life. That's acceptance of uncertainty. But we can't run from those things. We can't say, I'm going to lock myself in a room and not do anything because I, I want to avoid uncertainty. It's a matter of evaluating things as the best way possible we can and then moving forward. So, you know, maybe being with him is the best choice. I don't know. I'm sure that there's a lot of factors that go into whether or not you should be with him. Um, and But maybe breaking up with him is the best choice. Um, from the sound of it, it sounds like you're really in love with him. And from the sound of it, he sounds like a great guy. He came forward. He told you about these things. That's a big deal. A lot of people, you know, from what you told me about your culture and your life and everything, it sounds like it's, you know, it's a pretty rare thing for a man in his situation and his cultural pocket to actually come forward and tell you about this. That's a big deal. It's, it's a sign of sensitivity and honesty and, you know, humility that, uh, you know, will help. But, you know, I can't predict the future. <laughs> so anyway, but let me know what you think about this because I'm, I'm responding to a lot of assumptions that I have about your situation. I'm curious what you think about what I'm saying here. All right, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't liked us on Facebook, do so now. Go to Facebook and like our page, and so you can participate in our Tuesday Tougher Bluff games. Many of you participate in the Tuesday Tougher Bluff games, and many of you do not. So uh, it's usually a fun time. I throw out some research and try to trick you all, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Also, you can join the Facebook fan group, which I'm not a part of, but uh, I wanted people to have a place where they can say whatever they want to, good or bad, about the podcast. You can go to the Facebook fan group. I think it's just called Psychology in Seattle Fan Group. Okay, so let's go into another uh, patron email here. This email uh, is a follow-up to the rape fantasy episode that I did. Recently, I did a deep dive on rape fantasies in which um, I talked about statistics and possible speculative reasons as to why someone would fantasize about being raped when they masturbate or while they're having sex or while they're daydreaming, they think about being raped. And it's a pleasurable thing to them. And it's something we don't talk about a lot in our society, but it's actually quite prevalent um, for people and um, nothing to be ashamed of. You know, fantasies are fantasies. So I did a whole deep dive on that and this person, and I asked people to email me about their reactions and that kind of thing. Um, now, I just want to say rape and coercive sexual behavior, non-consensual sex is a horrible, abusive thing. It needs to stop. But fantasies are a whole other thing, right? So she writes, I would like to ask you uh, a follow-up question based on your episode on rape fantasies. I am female and I have a partner. And very early on uh, with my partner, we shared our sexual fantasies. After prodding for a while, he admitted to having an occasional rape fantasy in which he would rape someone else. He would fantasize about raping other people, sometimes voluntary rape and sometimes involuntary rape. So just chiming in here, if you want to know the distinction between voluntary and involuntary rape, you have to listen to the deep dive. It's uh, it's in the clinical literature. Rape fantasy, incidentally, has been fa you know fairly well researched within the psychological literature. It's something that doesn't get publicized very often, I think, for 
obvious reasons given our culture's Victorian history. But anyway, um, she goes on. Uh, so he has these fantasies about raping people and he feels a lot of shame about it since he never wants to actually rape people. I found your podcast episode on this topic very insightful. It seems to me that the majority of people would label my boyfriend as a sick person since he fantasizes about rape. While I assured him it does not bother me, so while I assured him it does not bother me, which is true, I think he and many other men would like to know where this might come from, from a man's perspective. Okay, so I'm not going to do a deep dive on this because I feel like maybe that's for another time, but um, I will respond to this. Yeah, there, there's a like I said, ton of shame around all things sexual, let alone something like this. And it's really silly sex shaming and it's lack of knowledge, lack of awareness that leads people to look at this uh, with a bad point of view. The fact is, is that when, so whenever we do research on this, you know, they, they ask people, how often do you fantasize about being raped and how often do you fan or do you fantasize about being raped? Do you fantasize about raping other people? And there's no way to know for sure the answer to this question. You just you have to ask people and ask and hope that they tell you the truth, right? And one, they could lie either way, right? They could lie that they have fantasies or they could lie that they don't have fantasies when they do or you know. But in general, there seems to be, you know, a fairly sizable percentage of just looking at men um, in particular who fantasize about raping other people. Something like 20 to 30% of men will report having the occasional fantasy about raping other people. Um, and they might have, there's, you know, probably a smaller percentage that um, think about it frequently, right? So, you know, it's a, it's a common thing uh, among the human population, at least in these studies, that will admit to thinking about raping other people while they're masturbating or while they're having sex. But the question is, is are these fantasies about raping other people, is it associated with actual behavior? Well, the fact is, when we look at the data, there is a correlation, seemingly a, cor a correlation between fantasy and urges or actual rape behavior, coerc sexual coercive behavior. But again, it's hard to nail down because you're asking people for self-reporting and you also are trying to, you know, a lot, mo the vast majority of sexual assaults go unreported. So it's, you know, it's, it's just hard to know. It's hard to gather data around this. But, you know, there seems to be an association and it makes sense, right? If you're the sort of person that rapes people and you like to rape people, then it makes sense. You would also fantasize about it, right? But the correlation isn't super strong because the vast majority of people who fantasize about rape do, do not actually engage in rape behaviors. So it, it's, it, it means that if you fantasize about rape, it means you have a slight increase in risk of, of committing rape or having committed rape. So, so again, just looking at the statistics, something like 20, 30, 40% of men have fantasized about raping other people. But um, uh, but very few men, percentage-wise, actually engage in sexually coercive uh, behavior. Now, a lot of men do it enough to make it a massive epidemic, pan you know, pandemic in the world. Um, but it's a low percentage of men. Um, so uh, now, the typical rapist, typical sexual abuser will tend to have scores of victims is the thing. So you don't need 
you know, one if one percent of the male population in the United States are, uh, you know, it, are have a tendency to rape other people, and of those, and and each one of those men rapes say twenty to fifty uh, people, then you're going to have a lot of victims in your society, right? So that's the key. Is like people who engage in sexually coercive behavior very rarely do it once and never do it again. They, they tend to do it again and again and again and again and again, because there's no consequence in our society because we have a screwed up society that doesn't support victims around this sort of thing and has, and shames victims and keeps them quiet. So, um, and doesn't have laws and protocols in place in the legal system to actually help people um, in the in the socially just way so so anyway but having said that very very few and I, it's hard to get a number of this right it's hard to, because the something like 99 percent of assault uh, sexual assaults go unreported it's like we don't really know this it's hard to know the statistics on sexual assaults right because it's, it's this vast dark data that we just don't have access to but it seems as though there's a pretty small percentage of people who actually engage in, in rape and sexually coercive behavior. Again, it only takes, you know, one or two percentile of the population to create a, a, a wake of damage in society, but it's pretty small. So now, so 30% of men, you know, 20 to 40% of men think about raping people in terms of their sexual fantasies. And if, say, 1% or 2% actually engage in rape, then we're talking about a pretty weak association between fantasy and actually behaving that way. You know, it's like saying, um, it, you know, there are other, just to point out other statistical things, you know, being sexually abused as a child increases your risk of abusing children when you become an adult, Right. But the vast majority of people who are abused as children do not grow up to abuse children, as I've been talking about before, right? So being abused as a child increases your risk of abusing children when you become an adult. But the vast majority of people who are abused as children do not grow up to abuse children. Or another thing that we can, another area we can look at is being poor, being low socioeconomic status increases your risk of engaging in criminal behavior. But the vast majority of poor people do not engage in criminal behavior. So people should be able to admit that they're poor, right? They should be able to, yeah, I don't earn that much money or I live in a shitty part of town um, without people assuming that they are a criminal, right? Someone could be, someone can say, um, I you know, work for minimum wage and, and we should, they should be able to admit that without having society assume that they're a criminal, right? It makes sense, right? In the same way that someone should be able to stand up and say, I was sexually abused as a child without the crowd assuming that that person abuses their own children, right? Now, being poor increases your risk of criminal behavior. Being sexually abused as a child increases your risk of abusing children when you're older. But but the vast majority of people don't, right? Um, and, and in the same way, you should be able to stand up in a crowd and say, I fantasize about raping other people without having the crowd assume that you have raped other people or that you plan on raping other people. It's, a, it's the same statistical thing. 
so I, I hope so I just, I just want to say that again. Someone should be able to stand up in a crowd and say, I'm poor without the crowd assuming that they're a criminal. Someone should be able to stand up in a crowd and say, I was sexually abused as a child without that crowd assuming that they abused their own children. And someone should be able to stand up in a crowd and say, I fantasize while masturbating or while having sex with my partner or while doing sexual play with my partner about rape, sometimes voluntary, sometimes involuntary. And they should be able to do that without the crowd assuming that they indeed rape other people. So, you know, but, you know, fat chance that'll ever happen. All right, let's read another email. Okay, this next email is from a, a woman who lives in Saudi Arabia, a young woman who says that she's an atheist and she has a hard time tolerating her reality, she says. She says, I, I can't tolerate my reality. She says that her household and her society is toxic and totalitarian and sexist, and she feels like a prisoner in Saudi Arabia. And we went back and forth over email, and I got a pretty big picture of what it was like for her. I would never, I have to admit, never um, communicated directly with someone in one of these uh, societies, with a woman in one of these societies, and it was eye-opening, to say the least. I mean, I'd, you know, read articles and seen news reports and stuff, but to actually interact with a young woman who lives in Saudi Arabia and hearing her stories and, you know, the sort of ground level emotional reality uh, of of what it's like, it, it was shocking to me. And instead of just reading the email exchange, which is quite long, I'll just try to summarize. And I might get some of these details wrong. But, but from my memory, essentially what she was saying was that uh, by law – she has to have a guardian, a male guardian. It's usually like a father or a husband or a brother or something. And that person basically has total control over your life. They, you know, the law, you know, you know, like they can beat you. They can make decisions for you about education. And, and you know, there's the new law that says that women can drive. But, but. Uh, that doesn't mean that women, you know, from the, from the news report, it's like, oh, you know, they they lifted the ban on on women to drive in Saudi Arabia. But from what this woman who emailed me is saying, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, sure, that's what the law is. But if my male guardian, who was my father, says that I can't drive, then I can't drive. You know, just because it's saying like essentially what the law is saying, according to her, is they're saying that. Uh, male guardians can allow their women to drive by themselves. <laughs> you know, it's like, but the male guardian still has total control over your life. They can at any time say who 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 you have to marry, uh, whether or not you can go to school, where you live, uh, if you can leave uh, the house, uh, if you can buy something or not. Uh, you know, every little thing they can, like I said, they can beat you at will and the society and the loss, you know, there are courts and there are laws, but they basically defer to the, the guardian, you know, it's a family matter. Uh, leave it up, to, you know, let's leave it up to the family. And so what she's saying is that for some women, they live in families where the male guardian is nice. The male guardian says, well, you know, let's follow the the societal rules and the law. But at the same time, you know, I'll ask my daughters and my and my wife how they feel, what they want. And so the, the guardian is is a, a fair arbiter of this, you know, pa highly patriarchal society legal system. 
But if you have a male guardian who is not so nice, who is uh, controlling, who is totalitarian, who is mean, who doesn't listen to you, uh, who has emotional problems, then you are, you are, you know, at their, you know, you're under their thumb. And so what this, you know, woman is saying, and, and she's atheist, by the way, so it's like she, it's, she can't come forward and out herself as that or else that, that's big trouble for her. So she talks about how, you know, her, she, she's terrified and she's demoralized and she doesn't know what to do. And she's just like, you know, I, I want to be free. I, I want to make my own choices. I want to get an education. I want to choose my own partner. I mean, things like, you know, in the United States that are just taken for granted, right? I mean, for privileged people, by the way. But, you know, the, uh, the ability to choose who you're going to marry, who you're going to date, uh, that was a whole other section she talked about in terms of dating, you know, it's just like, well, yeah, I mean, my parents can't make me date someone or make me not date someone, you know, especially if you're a young woman, an adult. Uh, I mean, certainly there are women in the United States who are uh, control. I mean, basically the way she describes it is and she uses this word, she's bullied. Her family bullies her uh, into submission. And uh, and, you know, it's like she could reach out for help from the law and from society and other people. But but people won't really react well to her. And then she has to just, then she has to go home and be berated and beaten down by her, by her male guardian. And it just, it just sounds, it just sounds awful, you know, handmaiden's tale situation, you know, it just, that today in 2018, we have an entire society in which half of the population is controlled by the other half. And, you know, as a as a Westerner, I I look at Saudi Arabia through my Western cultural eyes, right? And of course, I look at it like there's something terribly wrong with it, and and perhaps there is, quote unquote, objectively. I mean, I guess it all depends. I mean, I, I, I've never really given it a ton of thought or debate, or you know, um, I've never engaged in a discourse with people about this. And so I I have very little wisdom in my mind about it, but I do have to say that it made me formalize my morals about human life. And I do have a moral that people should be treated equally and people should be given equal rights. Right. And that uh, women as a group should not be given less rights and so according to that moral that I think should be applied to all societies, I think that this, you know, societal legal oppression of half of the population, I, I think is immoral. But again, it's hard for me to know, you know, Saudi Arabian men and women could have a discourse with me and convince me otherwise. You know, there, there is something to say for tradition and for stability and for other ways of having a society. And so, you know, I, I've been in those debates before. But I have to say that, um, you know, like she can't even travel. She talked about that. She's like, I can't even travel. So I can't even escape. I can't get out. I can't. It, she, it, it's just sad, right? She's a young woman who would love to escape her society and she can't leave. She's like caught in communist Russia, you know, in the Soviet Union. She's like trying to get through the demilitarized zone and she can't get out. And 
and she sees men around her with all these freedoms and she just can't, you know, she, and I'm guessing, you know, she listens to the podcast. She, she has access to the internet somehow. Right. And so she has access to this podcast and she, you know, she's getting these, these glimpses of, of freedom in the world that women are in other societies, given uh, the freedoms that she deserves. And, and she, you know, she, she wants that. And so she's asking me, she's, she's basically in this email, she's asking me for, you know, self, self-help methods on how to cope with this totalitarian society. And I just have to say, I have no idea what to say. I mean, uh, I wish it were different in your society. I wish you could get out. I, I wish that your society could hold on to tradition without oppressing half of its population. I wish that it could retain stability and retain uniqueness and retain its identifying, you know, identification with, uh, you know, however it identifies, whether it be Muslim or Saudi tradition or whatever, that it can hold on to its identity without needing to oppress an entire group of people. It just seems like, you know, that could be that that's a compromise that could be made. Right. It's sort of like in America, we have a history of white supremacy and a history of laws that uphold white people as being more privileged. And uh, right now, uh, and as time has gone on, we've progressed. We've said, you know, we can retain our American identity. We can still salute our flag and not be a white supremacist society. We, we can, or even a male-dominated society, right? Originally, the only people who could vote were rich, uh, non-Catholic, white men who, you know, had property, who were from a particular area of Europe, you know, like you had to be from essentially England and Scotland, maybe. But uh, if you were Irish, if you were Catholic, if you were Jewish, if you were Italian, you couldn't vote, you know. And so over time, we've, you know, and and every step of the way, there was resistance of like, well, this is un-American, right? It's un-American to let Catholics vote. It's un-American to let black people vote. It's un-American to let women vote. But we slowly, you know, changed our identity and said, it's you know, we're still America. We're still Americans. We're still United States, and we have expanded the rights and privileges to, uh, you know, more and more people. Well, I, you know, Saudi Arabia can do that. Not to say that you know we haven't had our problems and don't still have our problems, but but the you know getting back to the United States, we still have people who believe that we've lost our identity. Right? That by allowing feminists to talk and by allowing black people to be presidents that we have lost our American identity by letting Mexicans come in to the United States and speak Spanish. Right. It's like we've lost our American identity, but you know, though that's backwards thinking it's wrongheaded and it's um, not progressive and it denies change and, and denies really the the whole purpose of our constitution and of our bill of rights. You know, there's nothing in there that says, uh, you know, uh, uh, there. You know, if if anyway, the point. If we really stuck to like the uh, the sort of premises involved in the white supremacy, uh, Native Americans should be the only ones with privilege because they were here first. So, um, and of course, you know, no white supremacist is going to uh, stand behind that. So. Actually, some of them do, by the way. Anyway, my point is, is that uh, I feel terrible for this uh, patron. Uh, I just feel awful for her. Um, I don't know what to do. I, I think 
And I just have to recognize that, you know, it's it's easy to say it's like, well, let's rise up and pressure Saudi Arabia to change their system. And it's just like, ah, it's it, you know, with the amount of colonialism that America and the West has imposed on Saudi Arabia and all of those areas, that sounds that feels pretty yucky. You know, it feels pretty yucky for Western you know, uh, societies to go to Saudi Arabia and say, you must be different, right? It's like, yeesh, you know, my, my hope is, is that Saudi Arabia itself, which it seems like it's slow, slowly heading towards in terms of retaining its identity and also moving towards a more egalitarian society, which I believe to be a moral decision to make. Um, so, but in terms of for you, you know, listener who wrote in, you know, how do you cope with this? You know, God, I, I just, my heart breaks. I, I don't, I don't know what to do, you know, because the other thing you were talking about in your, in our email exchanges, you were saying, well, uh, some women will marry men who are nice, right? They'll marry men who allow women to drive, for example, or w- allow women to get education, maybe get a job, maybe, you know, go shopping, maybe wear makeup occasionally or something like that. Um, but if you grow, but what, you know, what you were saying to me was you grow up in a family that is highly traditional and your male guardian is very traditional and therefore will likely choose a husband for you who is also very traditional. And so it's like you're doomed to marry someone very similar to your current male guardian because that will be the only sort of man that will uh, gain the approval of your family. And so y- you don't have any hope for the future. There are There is hope for other women in Saudi Arabia who are raised by nice parents uh, and are, you know, um, who force their daughters to marry nice men, you know, uh, and, you know, and you also talk about just actual physical abuse, you know, from, from men and, and the, you know, the verbal abuse and the bullying and just, the, it just, it just sounds awful. It just sounds, it, it sounds like it, you also wrote about how your perception is, is, you know, some women, in your society basically just convince themselves that it it's fine and and they convince themselves that they're happy when they're really not and, and you seem to be kind of like at you know it's like well that's an option i could i could become delusional and tell myself that everything's okay when everything's not and you know ignorance is bliss or something and and that that seems to be like one of the options available to women in your society and i i just have to say like I mean, I'm I'm just trying to imagine for myself if I didn't have any power over my life in that way, you know, just and I'm only listing some of the things that are controlled, right? Education, dress, uh, makeup, expression of creativity, uh, education, who you marry, who, how many kids you have, where you go. I mean, just the fact that you can't go where you want to go and, and that as an adult, your your male guardian quote unquote, can just, can just decide that you can't go to school. It just breaks my heart. You know, it just sounds so demoralizing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I I guess in terms of like self-help would be to try to find support, I guess, try to find ways of coping you know, it, I feel like what I honestly what I feel like I'm doing is I'm talking to someone uh, before the Civil War, 
you know, I'm talking to a slave who lives in Alabama and they're asking me, how do I cope with slavery? I'm a slave, right? How do I cope with that? And it, it just seems so wrong for me to ask you to cope with something that's so unfair. It just feels so dirty to me to like ask a slave to cope with slavery. It just, you know, that can't, it's, you know, ugh. Um, you know, because like in the States, when we, when I, when people ask me questions about, you know, women will ask me, how do I deal with sexism in the United States? And, and I just, I have a much, you know, it's, I'll say, you know, fight back and advocate and join advocacy groups and, you know, uh, read up on how to advocate for yourself as a woman and, and, um, gently guide people around you to understand, uh, how women are being oppressed in your situation. You know, I, I just feel like there's room for movement in our society um, and things that you can do to feel empowered. But the situation you're in, you, you, from your description, it's a totalitarian rule over your life. It's, it's systematic legal sexism and, and, and you could say, in a sense, slavery, you know, to, to take away the rights of a, a group of people just based on their gender uh, and to, you know, it, it, it's, um, I, I just don't, I don't know what to say. Um, you know, again, if I was forced to, to provide some quote unquote advice, support, um, do the best you can. If there's a safe way you can, gain freedom or gain happiness or well-being or or fight back you know uh, there are movements in Saudi Arabia I know of that I mean I know very little of but I'm aware of there are movements in Saudi Arabia for women's rights you know if there's something you can do there um, you know once you do get married slowly socialize your husband to be more woke maybe um, but again you know, I, that is a huge uphill battle and I'm just really sorry that, that the world is like that. I'm sorry that the world has let you down and your, and, and society has let you down and that there's nothing I can do. And I wish there was something I could do. If anyone knows of anything I can do, let me know. Uh, okay. Well, on that depressing note, uh, which I, I think is, you know, I think it's legitimate sadness. And I mean, I think it's, I, th I think the sadness that I feel is, um, rational, I should say, you know, I, I think it, it's, um, there are, there are rational, sad, depressing things about our current world right now. And I think that's one of them. And, and if someone can convince me otherwise, you know, if some, Saudi person wants to tell me, no, 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 you don't understand. It's it's great, you know. The, 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 there's there's pros and cons to the societal oppression of women in Saudi Arabia. You're only seeing it through your Western um, colonialist eyes. You know, I'd be willing to entertain that, um, but um, it's hard for me to imagine a convincing argument for the oppression of half the population or oppression of any population. Right. But, uh, 
uh, for, for, you know, anyway. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. I mean, everyone does, right? Women in Saudi Arabia deserve all the rights that are, you know, possible, possible, right? I mean, it's not like we all have the right to live forever, right? Because we won't. But the the Saudi society can give the rights to women to choose their partner and to choose their education and to choose who they marry and to choose where they live. Like there's nothing, there's, there's no rational, I don't know, you know, again, if someone can convince, convince me that women don't deserve that, you know, again, I'd be, I'm open to listening. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it and take care of other people, please. Thank you.